everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Mountain Bike Podcast presented by Worldwide Cyclery. They're an awesome online retailer, but also a knowledge source for bikes. So when you need your bike parts, go to mtbpodcast.com, click on the store banner, and you can get your stuff through there. We've got a special episode today. Uh, I, we probably even sound different, and you can hear it because they're not on the normal microphones. And I'm in a conference room in Golden, Colorado at Yeti Cycles, and I'm sure a lot of you guessed that. On our Instagram channel, I put out earlier this week that we are going to talk with an engineer at a bike company, and we are going to talk about geometry, talk about bike design, that sort of stuff, so then we can get a better idea um, of what, when we read about a new bike when it comes out and it has certain changes or different things like that, we can kind of get an idea of what that is all about. So, uh, but without getting any further... Uh, I should introduce the man sitting across the table from me. We just did a lunch ride. Uh, I've got helmet hair. You also have helmet hair. <laughs> yeah, I've got no hair, yeah. so that's easy. <laughs> uh, introduce yourself, if you will, uh, your name, uh, your title, uh, that sort of deal. Perfect, yeah, my name is Peter Zawistowski. Uh, most people call me Stretch, so it's, it's weird to hear my actual name. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm 34 years old, and I'm the uh, director of engineering at Yeti. Awesome. So uh, to give people, I guess, a little bit of a background on how you became the director of engineering, uh, we did get some questions actually from some folks that were like, "Hey, I want to do that." So, uh, how did you, how did you get into that? Like beyond just drawing bikes as a kid, I don't know if you did that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a little bit of that. It's, I mean, I, there's definitely some hard work involved. I'd, I'd like to tell myself, but uh, there's some luck involved too. Um, mm. You know, the, I guess the long story. I guess depends on how long we want to get into it. But uh, <laughs> you know, for me, it's I've always loved bikes, and and um, and I I think that from the beginning. Um, I sort of, I think I liked the machine part of the bike more than the actual bike riding more. Like when I was like junior high, high school, like I just really liked bikes and, and um, looking at them and checking them out. And, and um, hmm. so uh, this, the second I had a chance, uh, I guess when I turned 16, I started working at REI and worked at the bike shop there. So sort of started out in a bike shop and um, met a couple of really good friends as I was in, uh, working there. And one of them, um, one of them is Chad Eskins. If anyone's familiar, he uh, actually works at DT Swiss now. Okay. Um, but long story short, there he um, he raced a lot, rode a lot at the time, um, and became friends with a lot of the guys at Yeti, and ended up being the the basically Yeti's demo guy at the time. And so oh, cool. I finished high school and uh, went off to school. And um, where'd you go to school? I uh, went to see you in in Boulder here in oh, Colorado. Cool. And are you from Colorado? Originally? I am. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Nice. I'm actually from Littleton, so I'm I'm like. Basically, 15 minutes from here is where I grew up, so it's it's kind of a funny thing. I'm cool. still here, so yeah, it's great. Uh, um, but yeah, I guess that going back to that story. Um, so uh, Chad ended up being Yeti's demo guy, and I was I went to school, and um, I got a random call from Chad one day, and and he's like, "Hey, uh, Yeti needs some help in the back assembly, and whatever I could do in the back." And um, and of course, I I was you know a big fan of the brand forever, and and uh, mm-hmm. I would jumped on that opportunity as quick as I could. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so basically when I was at school, this was, I guess, this was back in 2004. Um, and so I was a sophomore and up at CU. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, I basically work at Yeti in, uh, you know, the summers and, and the winters whenever I had a break from school. And I was um, working in the back, so doing everything at the time. We were much smaller. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, working in the back, doing everything from assembly to, you know, shipping bikes to, you know, back then we were at, we were manufacturing here. So I was threading BBs and, you know, facing BBs, head tubes, reaming, wow. all nice. that stuff. And, um, yeah, just loving it and doing it anytime I any, any break I had a chance. And um, that kind of just evolved. I did that any break I had at school. And in the interim there, I also did a couple other internships while I was at school that were outside of Yeti. And I'd Got still it. just come back to Yeti whenever I had breaks to, to work. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing that. And then 
from there, uh, as I was done with those internships and I was finishing up grad school, um, I had the opportunity to, um, who had asked if I wanted to, um, you know, do engineering here. And I was sort of at a, a crossroads in my, in my career choice, I guess. Well, the first, I just had a school basically, but I, I had an opportunity to do some other things. Um, I had an aerospace offer, um, aerospace engineering that I was doing. Uh, I, w- I did an inter- internship at Ball Aerospace. Nice. Um, and I really enjoyed that actually. Um, and I sort of had a choice on what I wanted to do. And, and um, you know, there's sort of different trade-offs obviously with those two directions and which, wh- which way you can go in your career and, and um, chose Yeti and uh, haven't looked back. And um, huh. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place to be. Yeah, what'd you study in college? What was your degree or focus? Uh, mechanical engineering. So both my um, BS and my MS are both uh, mechanical engineering. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. My, my brother is uh, a mechanical engineer and he chose, actually, I remember when Yeti was looking for some, I believe they're looking for some engineers back around March, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And he was faced with the same exact decision. Yeah. yeah. And he ended up in Lockheed. So oh, nice. he ended yeah. up choosing arrows. Yeah. They're both yeah. good choices. Yeah. I mean, yeah, both, both trade-offs, but I mean, for here, it's just the, the lifestyle you get and, and working with the people here, it's just basically like a, a family. You know, I've, I've been here for a long time and, and uh, it's pretty much my, my second family. So yeah. um, having that atmosphere and then also having sort of being pushed professionally doesn't always appear because it's really a fun job, right? But it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of a cool trade-off between um, having great people, having fun, getting to ride, um, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you're really still pushed professionally to try to do the, the best you can. Yeah, like, um, you know, it feels similar actually to my office space at Trainer Road like where it's people are, are are jovial they're having fun they're they're not like you know you don't look around and see people like hating their lives in their cubicles you know yeah. um, but everyone's focused on getting good work done like everyone just wants to do good work so, yeah there's there's a yeah. high expectation there here for that you know it's if um, if that's not your work ethic or your mentality then you'll you'll quickly not fit in so yeah um, it's sort of that uh, ability to do both, which is really unique. Before we get any further, there are a lot of people that sent in and they wanted to take the path of becoming a bike engineer. But the, I guess the question is, do you think, and this is your opinion, so do you think that it's better for somebody to start their own brand and be like a homebrew bike builder? Or if somebody wants to take that path of becoming an engineer in the bike industry, or do you think it's a better path for them to go with an existing company? I mean, with how advanced carbon manufacturing is and how just streamlined it seems like manufacturing is in general, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I guess one, maybe two parts of that. If, if you're talking about like starting your own company and going that direction, I feel like it's almost a different question. But hmm. um, in terms of, um, you know, if you're interested in bike design and you're curious about it and it's, it's not going to hurt you in any way to explore and work on designs and try to make things yourself prior to working somewhere else, it's only going to benefit you. And in fact, um, you know, if we're looking for some, someone that has engineering experience, if they have a portfolio of things that they've built, if they've had, um, a portfolio of the designs that they've worked on, that's a, a huge, um, asset for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the more you can work on those designs, the more you can show. Um, and then if your end goal was to work with a, you know, company like Yeti or, or whatever, um, then that's only going to help your, your chances there. And then from when you're actually, say you got hired to that place, then you'd only be learning more from that point on. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't think it should be like, okay, hey, let's um, not do anything and hope I get hired. Or it's, it's a tough <laughs> way to get in. I mean, there's a lot of people yeah. that are interested in doing it and it's pretty competitive. And um, it's, you know, in, in my case, it was, it was, it was luck to a point. Um, but it is definitely to get your hard to get your foot in the door, and so you need to stand out some way. And and I know for myself, when I'm looking for engineers to hire, that's that's one of the first things I want to see. Um, you know, what have you done? And it could be completely based in CAD. Um, you know, yeah. you don't have to actually make something. It's great if you if you can or are able to. 
Um, but the, you know, the more you can show what you've done from a design perspective, the more, uh, more interested I'm going to be. If I just get a resume right now and it didn't yeah. has, you know, traditional resume, it's almost just, you know, it's hard to say it, but I'm not going to look at it as closely as I am with someone that sends me, you know, 10, 20 pages of a PDF of, or, or actual CAD geometry or something that they've worked on. That's, that's what's most interesting to me. Yeah. So get like, get busy doing it. Right. Like, yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of the same across the board, software engineers and everything else. No matter what they, you know, these days, if you have a degree, it's not like a golden ticket, right? right? Like you have to, you have yeah, to I mean, be passionate about it. And like do on, it. on my side and, and kind of throwing some of that luck out is just that I was just really into it. Like I, I loved CAD and, and I loved bikes and I just like on my own time and I would just play around with it and really enjoyed that part. And, yeah. and that, uh, that really, I think helped me um, kind of get my foot in the door and, and having the, the interest and then the ability to sort of execute a, an idea and come up with a, whatever concept you're working on and try to talk about it from a theoretical standpoint and be able to do that is, I think is critical. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Cool. So we've got that stuff. I, the, the next little thing that we're going to talk about here is we're going to talk about like key geometry terms. Okay. Um, and what we'll do is we'll define it and you can define it however you wish. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there's no dictionary on this stuff, right? This is us basically. Exactly. And then uh, we'll, and I guess we can kind of talk about like the extreme examples of like, for example, if your stack, or this is stack, and if your stack is extremely long, right. this is what would happen on the trail. If its stack is extremely short, this is what would happen mm -hmm. on the trail. So uh, let's start with stack, actually, um, which is kind of an interesting one because, uh, well, we'll get into that in a bit. But sure. um, a stack, what is stack? Yeah, well, I guess definition-wise, that's a pretty simple one. So it's just the, the vertical dimension from the axis of your bottom bracket to the center of the top of your head tube. Okay, so um, like the space, but the vertical space between them, yeah, how just, high it rises up. Yeah, you can just think of like x y coordinates. Your uh, you know your stack is your y dimension from your center of your, BB, of your BB to your head tube center top that is, and then your your reach we'll talk about later. But your reach is that in that x dimension or the horizontal value. Got it. Uh -huh. So I, we hear about stack um, on on bikes and and people talking about you know getting the proper stack for a specific bike. Uh, I guess if you have a bike with a super long stack, like you know super super high stack like really high, what would be the on-trail implications that make a bike handle poorly and how? You know, I think that it's a funny way. I, actually, I think to, out of all of the values to start with, stack's a funny one um, <laughs> just because I feel like it's the most ambiguous by far. Um, huh. So there's sort of, uh, there's so many uh, variables that are going into that that um, it's going to be a factor that changes for a lot of people. So there's a lot of personal preference, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, and then second, there's a lot of differences in people's um, proportions in their in their body. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing to look at rather than maybe just your stack itself is is like your drop. So what's the distance from your saddle to your to your mm -hmm. stem typically? Yep. Um, and so the, the thing there is that one, it's related to your proportions. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about how weight bias and stuff affects it too. But um, proportions are a big part of it, your body. And then it's just preference, which is just straight up preference. Like yeah, there's people right. that, that are way faster than I'll ever be that have a crazy high stack and then vice versa that have it really low. So there's yeah, some I run a pretty low stack on, yeah. on mine. Yeah. There's some yeah. portion of that that is just purely, um, preference, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but without a doubt, I mean, if you generally that, you know, the shorter your stack, um, and the more you can weight your front wheel, the further over the, the bars you are, um, that sort of feeling. So you sort of need to come up with a way, um, for yourself that balances in this. In, are you only descending? Are you climbing and descending? What type of bike is it? Yeah. Um, so a lot of that ends up being, you know, fits into how you're setting your bike up. Are you climbing most of the time and you need to be in a comfortable position to do that? If you're really far forward the whole time, you're probably not going to be very comfortable climbing. Um, and vice versa, and you maybe if you're descending more, then you can be a little bit lower and you can be more aggressive over the front. Um, it kind of depends on a lot of those factors. So 
one thing that we end up doing is uh, because of this, and, and head tubes end up being one of those things that it's never the right answer because everyone, <laughs> just going back to being ambiguous. You didn't um, make it right for me. Yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what we ended up doing over time is basically we'll go through and, and measure everybody's bike at, at Yeti and whoever else we can find that. And we'd look at, you know, how many spacers are they using and is it a 29er or is it a 25 bike? Um, and those that actually tends to change the, the feel as well. Mm. Um, and so our goal is to make sure that our head tube gives the flexibility for someone to get to the position they want to be within reason. Um, sometimes there's some trade-offs there, like you get the per person that wants to run a lower stack simply because they don't want to put spacers and don't want it to look that way aesthetically, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm vain, that's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah you get that. So, <laughs> yeah. so then like, you know, that actually drove some of our longer length head tubes in the past is that a lot of people um, were slamming their, their stem, um, but they were doing it, it was fitting fine, um, but they were doing it because they didn't want to put spacers there. Yeah. And then you get the guy that was like, oh, I want to go lower and I can't do it. So you, it, it's one of those things, and this happens, I've learned over the years, yeah. very commonly in the bike world is that um, it's often the, difficult to please everyone. Um, in fact, I would say <laughs> Perhaps it's impossible. impossible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a strange group of people. Bike riders are, it turns out, um, yeah. they're very opinionated and, and uh, which is good. Um, but yeah. it's one of those things they have a lot of heart in it and, and they're really into it. But it's, it's a, it's a funny thing when you get product out there, you just hear the whole spectrum, you know, the best, oh, best thing ever, worst thing ever. And, and you just sort of get used to hearing that commentary over time. Yeah. And I feel like stack is, is a, is a big one of those huh. um, for sure. So, and, I guess we'll get into reach here, but I think stack and reach, those terms were coined by Dan Emfield, I believe. Um, and But I could be wrong. You know, that. I actually don't even know. I just think of it so simple that I don't even, yeah. whoever came up with a, whatever name they want, yeah. that's fine. I, I, I can give them credit. That's great. Um, yeah. I don't know who did it. Um, when I think of it, it's like the most simple geometry. You could, it's literally the most simple geometry you can think of. It's an really it's is. A X and a X, y, y value of a point. <laughs> so. And the reach part, let's cover that. So like uh, reach is usually that. So is that the distance from the bottom bracket to the head tube? Same same thing as the stack in terms of the the two points you're looking at, but we're looking at the x value or the or the horizontal value as opposed to the vertical value. And the, I guess the maybe some where the credit might be more due is is just maybe talking about reach in a way that is taking seat tube. Um, completely out of the equation. So that you know, you're not looking yeah. at your seat tube angle, you're not looking at your saddle position, you're only looking at your distance from your BB to your head tube. So, which is an important thing. And you know, it's obviously more um, relevant when you're talking about descending than you're talking about climbing. So well, all of a sudden when we're talking about climbing and we're talking about our seat tube position and we need to, or sorry, we need to talk about our seat tube position and where we're, our our saddle is located in Where's order the to, to climb. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, Reach, um, you know, and obviously it's very re related to front center and, and all that stuff and, and actually C2 bangle as well because those two play with, <laughs> with effective top two lengths. So all these things affect each other. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those things like, I think um, it's tough to really talk about as an engineer especially. Yeah. Um, it's, talk to, it's tough to just talk about one of these values when oftentimes they're very directly related. It's just, it's all geometry, really simple geometry. Yeah. And a lot of the times those values are dependent on each other. So it's it's something that you need to look at as a system and not just, um, and it's cool that we're breaking it down and, and talking about it. Um, but in the end, how those variables are playing with each other is really what's most critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And reach is something that we hear a ton about and we hear about in the context of like, oh yeah, this bike, 
like, you know, this bike has modern geometry and I'm doing air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't see that, of course, mm-hmm. you know, on the podcast, but modern geometry and it's kind of like the long slack and low, which mm-hmm. we'll get to that stuff in a little bit, but that long part is reach is yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah, without a doubt. So what does it, when you're riding a bike with a longer reach within reason, like, you know, let's mm-hmm. talk about like a, a bike from 2006 with a much shorter reach versus like, mm-hmm. you know, a, a modern bike. Um, what's the point of making the reach longer in terms of on-trail feel? You know, if you just talk generally and you're talking about, again, it comes back to all, how all these variables play together, and we'll, I'll kind of come back to that. But mm-hmm. um, in, general, in general, the more reach you have, the more stability you're going to get, the, the, the longer your front center. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that ties into things like head angle and, and mechanical trail and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess my general thought on talking about, air quote, the modern geometry is that, a lot of these things need to, they, they play together in order for the whole system to work well. So if you just had a really long reach and then you didn't adjust your your head angle or your, your um, trail in any way or your seat tube angle anyway, it's gonna be funky. Yeah, um, sure. And so <clears throat> that's sort of the key. When I, when I think of modern geometry, it's it's um, all these things working together um, in order to make this this feel and then put you in the proper position to, in terms of center of gravity and weight bias, to to really be able to to climb and descend better than we, than we could in the past. Got it. Um, so let's rip through the other ones. The other ones are going to be easier because they're more yeah. like just direct measurements. Let's do it. Head tube angle. Head tube angle. That's just the angle of the steering axis relative to the ground. Perfect. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and and we see head tube angles getting slacker with time, um, yeah. in almost every case, right? Uh, and and I used to be like only gnarly downhill bikes or downhill oriented bikes would have slack angles, but now we're even seeing like on the XC side of things, yeah. XC bikes are getting slacker and slacker. It's and and when it gets slacker like that to a certain point, and once again, it's all kind of related, but it improves. Is it stability? Is that what it goes for? Yeah, and I, and when I was thinking about these these questions, it's it's um, this one I think is in particular really tough to talk about just head angle. Yeah. Um, so the the things that we're we really need to take into consideration. I'm going to kind of clump some of these other variables together. Let's do it. And that is that you know. Let's just start here. We'll start with trail, or in, and and talk okay. about that and how the other variables affect that. So. Um, Trail is something that's been around, you know, I can talk about how to, I guess, define that's weird without paper, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I typically talk about mechanical trail. It's what I prefer and, and it's, it's directly related to normal trail, but I just okay. think it makes more sense from a mechanical standpoint. Got it. Um, but basically if you, if you talk about mechanical trail, there's, there's three main variables that are driving that. It's your head angle, your fork offset and your wheel size. Got it. Okay. And so if you just simply the best way, I mean, all right. So if you take a, take a, your front axle and your axis of that axle and draw a vertical line until it hits the ground. Got it. Okay. Got that guy. Yep. And then now take your steering axis and extend it downwards towards the ground. So ver- another vertical line? Uh, not vertical, but this is- It follows the yep, same angle. Collinear okay. to the to the steering axis. Got it. Okay. And now uh, take a line that's perpendicular to that and intersect it with where the first line touches the ground. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's, it's basically the lever arm in which your, your tire contact pad is relative to your steering axis. Yeah, so like that, the, the, the first point is straight down below that axle. Mm-hmm. The second point that you talked about extends in front of that axle, right? Um, it, so in some let me cases. describe it another way. So yeah. um, so take, a, take that first line from your axle and go straight down to the ground. Yep. That's your, t- your tire contact patch, basically. Yep. Um, now take, 
take that same point where it hits the ground and just have it kind of hanging out there. Yeah. Have it intersect with your steering axis, but perpendicular to that steering axis. So it's just Got the it. distance from your steer, your steering axis to where your tire contact points is, and then that perpendicular relationship. So if we're talking like a, about a moment. Yep. It's the you know the force would be relative to where your tire contact patch is, and the distance is going to be that perpendicular distance from your your steering axis. Got it. This is like the most complex one for people to understand, and because yeah. fork offset is is a hot term right now, or a, yeah. or a hot thing of you know a big changing thing and this is one that's really tough for people to understand the, the biggest thing and the reason why it's tough and it's it, I'm, i'll say it straight up it's tough for, it completely goes against my intuition in terms of, <laughs> of what you expect would happen to that value yeah it's yeah. like when i in my for some, whatever reason my intuition tells me that the longer the fork offset the the greater the mechanical trail and it's yeah, yeah. the inverse of that and you oh. until you draw it and you look at like the geometry like literally draw it out for yeah. me i'm a very visual learner i guess it took me it takes that for me to really understand why that's the case. We'll draw this um, out after this yeah. and we'll put it up on our Instagram <laughs> channel so that people can see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But the, the key thing there is that there, those are the three variables that, and we'll talk about what that that is doing, but the, the three variables that are controlling that are, are again, head tube angle, um, fork offset, and tire diameter, or wheel size. Um, and so in general, the slacker your head angle the greater that mechanical trail. Got it. Makes sense. Going back to my intuition, the shorter the offset, the longer the mechanical trail. Okay. Then going to wheel size, the greater the wheel size, the longer the mechanical trail. Okay. Um, and so all those three variables can you can play with and from a design perspective. If, say you could choose any wheel size you wanted, and you can mess with that mechanical trail value. Got it. So the way it really, at least I don't know this for sure, but in my opinion is that the way that fork offsets were sort of set back in the day when we went to when 29ers started arriving is you know it's it's roughly a 51 millimeter offset back in the, back then. Yeah. And I think what my thought is that the goal was for as an industry is for um, if if we go to 29 and then we didn't change the fork offset and all of a sudden you needed to change your head angle as a result of whatever mechanical trail you're after. Yeah. yeah. Then the consumer would be pretty confused if all of a sudden you're like, oh, here's a new bike and the head angle is off by two degrees compared to what it was before. I just making up a value there. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So I think the main driver for the the offset was to keep a consistent head angle. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, that way consumers wouldn't be confused. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> I think what happens has happened since then is like, okay, there's a lot of other variables going on and, and, and what's affecting how your bike is, is how stable it is and how it's steering. Um, it's not, and, and fork offset is one of those variables and, and you shouldn't just look at mechanical trail. Um, so I'm kind of walking in a circle here, but yeah, mechanical yeah. trail, as you, as you get longer in theory, the, you know, the more stable the bike is going to be at speed. Um, you have a greater lever arm at your mechanical trail and it's going to want to keep that, that wheel stable. Makes sense. Um, okay. But, at the same time, typically what you what you think is that the greater that mechanical trail, in general, I think has been at least our thought is the greater that mechanical trail, then the slower your steering is going to be. It's going to be sort of feel floppy uh, at slow speed, and, yeah. and it's going to be a little bit more cumbersome, um, yeah. not as quick. Tight little switchbacks. It might be yeah. a little tougher to manage. Yep. Yep. And I think the the big difference, and and this is one of the rare occasions, um, and, and I guess in engineering or whatever you want to design where it ends up being a, a win-win with this geometry on, on mm -hmm. shorter offsets and, and slacker head angles. So if you go back and we just said that the greater, the slacker, the head angle, the greater the mechanical trail mm -hmm. and the shorter the offset, the greater the mechanical trail. And we then said that the greater the mechanical trail, the more stable and potentially the slower your steering is going to be. Got it. So in, and again, back to intuition and just looking at numbers, you'd be like, okay, we're going to a slacker head angle and we're going to a shorter offset. 
so how can that be good right. from a climbing standpoint? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, because the mechanical trail is huge now. Yeah, you think that it would be mm -hmm. uh, unruly in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So there's other factors, you know, and, and when you go to that short offset, and there, I guess the two factors that I would, I think are key, is that as you go to this this longer geometry and a longer reach, and your center of gravity is pushed forward, and your whether and your climbing position is pushed forward because your C tube angle is steeper. Yep. Your weight distribution is completely different than it was prior. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of these things combined are, are helping there. Um, and then also, you know, technically you have a, a shorter offset, so that you know that arc in which your your wheel is is arcing as it, as it's turning is yep. smaller, so maybe you can feel a little bit quicker that way. Yeah. And the combination of that weight bias and being further forward. Um, despite that giant mechanical trail, it you don't get that crazy slow sloppy feel that you huh. that you did in the past. It's interesting. So like I think a lot of people probably look at a bike and they think that an engineer says, okay, like we need to have this head tube angle. But how you phrase it there changed at least the way that I think about it in the sense that you're really going for a performance. You're going for performance. And as a result, you work with many variables that affect things, not just the head tube angle, but you're working with with multiple variables that then end up changing that. Yeah, without a doubt, it, and actually it'd probably be, if <laughs> if the whole world was engineers and, and kind of preferred to think that way, like it'd yeah. probably be a better value to not even give the head angle and just give the mechanical trail and then talk about your, your rest right. of your geometry. Because yeah, like it, mechanical trail would almost be like, um, it'd almost be like stack and reach in the sense that it's almost like a, you know, it's not like just something, a direct yeah. measurement like that. Because then, you know, you don't have to, you know, wheel size is obviously a big factor there and, and sort of like the opposite of maybe what that approach was with let's go to a 51 mil offset because it's going to make a consistent head yeah. angle. It's more like, okay, let's just talk about the variable that takes that out of you know, out of the equation in terms of the wheel size and you're just talking about the thing that we really are looking at, mechanical trail. And then also um, what we've learned, you know, over the years now is this geometry is that it's not just mechanical trail, obviously, because those values are huge. And, mm -hmm. and our initial intuition was that, like, it, you know, it's there's other factors in terms of geometry and, and the dynamics of what's happening with the bike that yeah. are changing that feel. So it's sort of a, at least my older older thoughts of you know really focusing on mechanical tra mechanical trail and trying to use that as a sort of standard variable is that in, in reality that'd be nice, but or sorry, not in reality, in, yeah, it, yeah. it would be nice, but in reality it's more complex than that. And there's other variables that are driving how that steering is feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we should start a revolution, man. I think <laughs> that we good. should yeah. push mechanical trail <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. people actually understand the on trail implications of it. Um, C2 angle, they've been getting steeper over time. Yep. Um, especially as of late. And, you know, we're talking about everything, how it affects everything else. You know, it's all mm -hmm. interconnected. But it's, we're basically, as seat tube angles are getting steeper, it's pushing the rider further forward on the bike, right? Um, and that improves, and this is me being the, the, I'm totally not an engineer, so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, that puts the body in a position where they're a little further over the front of the bottom bracket, which mechanically speaking for the body is more efficient than being too far behind it, right? Yep. So that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Mm -hmm. And I've always had to slam my saddles forward on a lot of my bikes to get into the ideal you know, position for power output because of that. But now, not so much. Yeah, It's kind of a cool thing to see. But then it also puts more weight on the front tire, right? Because yeah, your weight's sure. further forward. And without a doubt, and it, it kind of... Another thing that sort of, again, against intuition, I think with a lot of this longer geometry is that then the other perception is that, hey, this wheelbase and this front center is huge. It's going to just be like a limousine on a switchback, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and they, it, it, the values are, in, like when you first, when we were kind of going through the bikes or development of our new bikes and we're like, man, this on paper, this is like, it's intimidating from uh, the values that we were sort of used to seeing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what, 
the big change there is that I, I mean, I ride an extra large. I'm a, I'm a tall guy yeah. and it's a big bike. Like, and yeah. I for sure climb and just climb better than I did prior. Yeah. And I'm able to, my, I, I, my perception is I'm able to, to more easily clear those switchbacks that are tighter despite having a much longer front center. And I think the, the big part of that is, is where your weight bias is and where you're, you know, you're over the bike where you need to be. Um, your saddle's allowing you to do that. And, um, you sort of need to be in that position with that with that head angle and all that stuff that's going on, and so I, yeah. I feel that um, I actually climb better in those tight situations with the with that bigger bike, um, and so it's it definitely goes against sort of your intuition in terms of of how that rides. Yeah, it's. I mean, do you think C tube angles are going to continue to get steeper as time you know, goes on? Um, there, there's a couple of drivers there, so we we did a lot of testing on C tube angles, and and uh, we certainly could go steeper, and it would be fine. There's sort of a limit. Uh, we haven't, I guess, in short, I don't feel like we've yet sort of made a bike and played around with it that was too steep. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's sort of other considerations that you need to take into, or I already said consideration, but yeah. you need to take into consideration other things. So like in terms of packaging of the suspension um, and everything else that's going on in terms of, of the bike di design in general. Yeah, because so that would affect it, right? Like where the linkage goes yeah, and everything else. Seats where it is, where your shot can be, you know, mm -hmm. tire clearance. You know, it sort of is one of those also nice things that typically doesn't happen this way, but as you go to like a more travel and a bigger wheel and all those sort of things, you inherently need to have the seat tube further forward because yeah. it won't fit. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. it actually was one of the rare, typically those always work the other way where you're like all these things that we want are working against what we want from a design perspective. Right. And seat tube is one of the for fortunate ones that we have that I think we have, there's a ton of flexibility in how steep you can actually go. Yeah. Um, and then the next part of the equation is, okay, well, what's going on with the rest of the frame? What are your kinematics? What does your structure look like? Mm -hmm. And that's where we ended up, where we ended up on the current model that 77 degrees um if, you know if in a i think you technically could go steeper um yeah. if you wanted to um but when we're trying to optimize the rest of the package that's the the angle that we uh, ended up at yeah like you're you're going for a specific thing not just trying to outdo the numbers of the competition right like i think a lot yeah. of people like when you when you go into pink bike comments and you look at things yeah, right yeah. it's like oh well this one has greater numbers than this one so this right. one is quantifiably better but the, the, the goal of the engineer is to create a bike that performs a specific way. Right. So the numbers sure might get you there, but they don't necessarily tell right. the same story that you can't that's, just compare them. That's sort of like in this conversation in general, it's, it's uh, one of my nerd pet peeves is that <laughs> just to talk about geometry in general and people are like, oh, this, these guys are really pushing geometry or this or they, they call geometry a technology. Um, yeah, and to, yeah, yeah. And to me, it's, it's a... Like geometry, don't get me wrong, has a, a huge effect on, on everything and how the bike rides. Um, but from like an engineering perspective and from a sort of a, a curiosity on how we can improve things, um, it's sort of pretty low on my list of things that are exciting to talk about. <laughs> um, because yeah. it, it's, it's a, it's a you can do whatever you want. Right. And just because you went to a, a you know, your whatever, your head tube angle is 50 degrees and your seat tube angle is 90, um, you're, you can sure push that geometry. That doesn't mean it's the right answer. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Um, chain stay length. This is an interesting one, uh, because for a while it was like short chain stays, make them as short as you possibly can. That probably causes a whole lot of design implications and you're pushing that tire closer into where the, the drive, you know, where the axle or where the, the, uh, the cranks are. Right. Yeah, for sure. And then where the suspension is going to fit and all that <clears throat> other stuff. So a lot of complex stuff, but a short chain stay bike, uh, people usually characterize that as a playful bike, right? Yeah, for sure. And then would longer chain stays give you something that would be more stable? Correct. Generally yeah. speaking? Without a doubt. Um, so uh, a question that, that I see is, is there a sweet spot? Because like for a while it was like just shorter, shorter, shorter. 
but uh, I assume, or I don't know, do you feel like, like you mentioned with seat tube angles, like you feel like you can push that more with chainstay length? Is you know, it beneficial to push it more? I mean, obviously there's a, as you mentioned, the fundamental issue of just space. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. But uh, I'll go back to, to relating chainstay length to, uh, to stack in a way, and even more so in terms of being ambiguous and yeah. uh, what, <laughs> there's no right answer there. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, like you mentioned it there, like the longer you go, the more stable, yeah. um, the shorter you go, perhaps the more uh, playful and, and your center, you know, your, your weight biases, your distribution is a little bit different. So maybe you can manual a little bit easier and so on. Um, so, I mean, I think that um, where, I think there's a pretty big range actually where chainstay length is okay. Um, there, you know, there'll be people that be like, I'll change the chainstay length by three millimeters and I can for sure tell that difference between yeah, yeah. this bike and that bike. And, and uh, I'm not quite so sure on that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's one of those ones that there's, a, 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 we're in a space that is okay. Um, so yeah. in this range, you know, maybe say it's whatever, plus or minus five to sure. eight millimeters, whatever it is. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think along, as long as you're sort of within reason there, um, it's, it's one of those variables that's a little bit more flexible in terms of, uh, um, trying to optimize the whole structure again for sure. And yeah. trying to choose a, a, a chainstay based off of that and not just being like, okay, here's the number that I'm going for. Yeah. While we're on chainstay length, this was a question that we got from a number of different folks. They were like, you know, when I buy, when I go from a medium to a large, mm -hmm. uh, my front center changes. In other words, like the length in front of the bottom bracket. Yep. But when I, but the, the length from the bottom bracket to the rear axle doesn't change, right? On the chainstay length uh, per size. Is that something that you think it would be beneficial for bikes to do that? Or is there a reason why you don't change that? What's you know, the engineering reason behind it? So a couple of things there. I, I went, I guess the first thing I was mentioning before is I do think there's actually a decent amount of flexibility in what is, is acceptable in terms of a range. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the most obvious one is that it's, it would be really difficult from a manufacturing and logistical standpoint. Yeah. Um, not that like, okay, if it would be that much better if we did it. Uh, but to think about it, so say right now our, in our designs, we have a, a solid swing arm. So our, our whole swing arm is one part. It's not like a more of a, like say an FSR design where you have a chain stay and an independent seat stay. Right. Uh, where that would be maybe be a little bit easier where one component could be changed and the other ones uh, would be the same. Right. Um, and so, you know, say we needed whatever, three tools for a swing arm to, to be able to produce the volume that we need to produce. Um, and then you multiply that by five. Uh, well then yeah. we have, not only we have 15 tools um, and, and the ability to manage that from a manufacturing standpoint, but then a logistical standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so the, the obvious answer is that from a, it's, it's, it would be a really difficult thing to do sure. from a manufacturing standpoint. And in my opinion, I don't think worth it. Got it. Cause I mean, everything has a cost, right? And in some cases those costs are justified, yeah. but in this case, it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, like if you ride like an extra small, right. I mean, in most cases it seems like brands are already kind of snugging that tire up as close as it can go. Yeah. I'd say you're, you're limited there. And if you were to get longer with size, um, you know, does that make as much sense anymore when we have such a long front center and our weight is pushed forward anyways? Mm -hmm. Um, and to be completely honest, I haven't, really explore that from a, like a prototyping standpoint very much. So, yeah. uh, I, I would love to play around and, you know, do a couple bikes that, you know, a few bikes that have different chainstay lengths and, and really focus on that and just, just understand better from a, um, a you know, taking the theory and taking it to real life practice. And, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and understanding it. But, um, uh, yeah, just that alone, I don't personally think it's worth it. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's an interesting point where like, 
uh, I think that in the mind we go, well, all things must be equal, right? Like, like yeah. the front of the bike is changing, the rear of the bike yeah, needs yeah. to change, right? But uh, that's our minds. That's our right. uneducated minds. But it would be cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm all for playing around with, with experimenting with that. And, and um, you know, and say in a perfect world, all right, you can choose your own custom geometry and do everything for your body size and so on. Then, then yeah, it'd be kind of fun. I mean, it would be fun to, to be able to manipulate every variable that we possibly could. Yeah. Uh, but there's within reason we need to be able to manufacture or something. Yeah. Um, bottom brass bracket height. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the bottom bracket height was understood by a lot of people recently within the context of like when you have a 29er, uh, they ended up dropping the bottom bracket a little lower than it was before when with 26 inch bikes, right? When that was like that whole switchover was going, but um, bottom bracket height, it's where your bottom bracket sits in space and rel in, in, you know, relative to the other points of your bike. But I'm kind of curious, like, uh, I, I hear that a lower bottom bracket makes a bike more stable once again, mm -hmm. but is there a point of diminishing returns with that where the, the, the bike actually starts to handle poorly because it's too low? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, I mean, the most, again, obvious one there is just pedal strikes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so if you're making a bike that, you know, typically you're in a pedal strike more often when, when you're climbing than you're descending. So you can maybe get away with a, a lower BB on a bike that's just meant to go down. Yep. Um, that's part of it. Um, you know, they, the other thing is that plays a big factor is your suspension, not only from a, a leverage ratio standpoint, but from an anti-squat standpoint. And yeah. where, where is your bike going to be sitting in its travel um, as, as you're, you know, in your sag, close to sag range yeah. um, and where you're pedaling the most of the time. So if you have a bike that you know you're going to blow through that travel pretty easily, whether it's a leverage ratio or an anti-squat issue, um, then you're going to need a higher BB or else you're going to be just slamming into rocks all the time. So it's <laughs> it's not just the geometry of the, of, you know, the ground to the BB. Yeah. It's how is the rest of the system working? together and, and how is your what's your suspension and how is it behaving yeah um, when you're in that pedaling position and so it's two i'd say it's more than just that height and that's how we determine it um and a big thing there is it's kind of one of those there's not a like the perfect science to that it's mm -hmm. a lot of it's been you know we've been making bikes for 15 years and we've been riding the same trails for 15 years and we know say we know what this bottom bracket height is going to feel like on our trails that we're riding every day. We know, are we hitting tons of rocks? And yeah. then we know a lot of what's going on on the theory side on suspension. So we sort of are, you know, constantly tuning that BB height, mm -hmm. um, every model that we're doing based off of our experience in the past and knowing what's going to happen theoretically on the suspension side. So it's not like to determine our BB height, it's not like, okay, it's going to be 13.2 inches and that's the number. Um, it's, you know, what have all of our past bikes done? How is the difference in the kinematics between that bike and the bike we're looking at? What's the amount of travel the bike has? Mm -hmm. You know, where's your BB going to end up when you're fully compressed? All those sort of things are, are determining, yeah, what our, what our BB heights are going to be. Um, I feel like we've covered like the, the majority of the, of the, the main kind of geometry points, I guess. The one thing I want to know from you as, a, as an engineer when a new bike comes out, right, and it's not something you've worked on, uh, so it's it's something else. When you look and you want to figure that bike out, like get a reference point for it, are there certain data points and there are geometry data points that you like look for to kind of go, oh, okay, so this bike is probably similar to this, or this is kind of how it behaves. In other words, like it, like key geometry points that you pay attention to over others. Yeah, and it, <laughs> again, it's sort of. Uh, as the engineering answer is that it's difficult to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'll just, yeah. yeah, cause I'm looking at how they're all reacting to each other. And then, you know, what also, what's the, the suspension design, what's the linkage design, what's the travel and so on. So I look at, I sort of tend to 
they may be getting more involved than others do likely. Yeah, um, sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, I'll, I'll probably look at some of the, the easy ones. Like, you know, what's the, you know, what's the chain say length, head angle, BB height, re- reach. Yep. Those are like the quick ones. So I can be like, okay, I have a general idea of what's happening. Right. And then, uh, and then I'll start to kind of dive in further from there and what's the suspension doing. Um, and then what are the rest of the variables? You know, what's, what's the fork offset and so on. So my quick ones are just to get a quick idea of what's happening. Yeah. I'd say, uh, BB height, reach, head angle, maybe chain stay. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So then when people are listening to this, when you look at bikes and that sort of stuff, hopefully that can help you get a kind of feel and you'll get more familiar with those data points on different bikes after you ride them. And then you make note of what those data points are. You know, it can kind of help give you some, some, some point of reference. Uh, for the rest of this, we're going to kind of just jump through some questions that were submitted, um, from our listeners. And we're just going to jump through and, and cover a, a handful of these with the time that we have left. Um, I think that the main thing that will, we'll, so this is going to bounce around, but just bear with us, I guess. Um, I kind of want to talk about the prototyping process. There are a bunch of questions, or I should say just the engineering process, because prototyping falls within that. But there were a lot of questions about that. Um, so I know this much because we did a lunch ride today and actually I couldn't ride with a certain group of, of, of riders because they were riding things that were not yet released. Right. Um, in other words, or in process at some point, whatever the process is. So you guys do in-house prototyping or some sort of engineering. I assume it's not like you just farm all the production out. Right. So I guess there's a a long answer to that. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of things have changed over the years in terms of materials and and what, how we do prototypes and what makes sense. Um, and then also a lot has changed in terms of our understanding from a theoretical standpoint and and how confident we are with, with what's happening sort of behind the scenes before we commit to, to making a prototype. So, uh, when we were, we actually don't do any manufacturing here in house. Um, we're, um, everything is, is done in Asia from that standpoint. And you're able to get stuff quickly and bring it over that sort of thing. We are. Yeah. We can talk about it later, but we are, we are actually developing a, um, basically a composite prototyping lab here in house, something that we've been working on the last four months now and, and uh, are, are starting to ramp that up, which is really exciting and really Sweet. cool. Nice. Um, that's sort of a side topic, but the, what, the point I guess I was getting to is that when we were making bikes that were aluminum or, or alloy bikes, it was a lot easier to prototype. Yeah. One, um, you know, we had all the equipment to do it um, and it was completely relevant. So you make a prototype out of, of aluminum. It may not look pretty, but you're really getting an idea of, of uh, not only the geometry and the kinematics and how things are riding, but um, structurally pretty close to what you would achieve in, say, a production environment. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, we're making everything out of composites, making a a composite prototype is is uh, is no cheap venture um, <laughs> and not quick. Um, so it really depends um, on what we're doing in terms of what material. I, that was one of the questions I think is what material are we are we prototyping? Yeah, out like of? where does it start? Like, do you guys like three D? Do you cut stuff out of foam or like <laughs> what uh, first? Or you know, a few things. So it, start? it all starts in the computer. Um, yeah. is, is obviously the first thing. Um, what software do you use for that? By the way, we use a, a, a collection. Um, yeah, our, sure. we sort of. SolidWorks is our staple. Um, we start and end in SolidWorks, and we use a lot of other softwares in between. Um, whether we're setting something in terms of FEA or whether we're um, working on, on complex, you know, technical surfacing and so on, we have different applications that we use for that. Got um, it. FEA finite element analysis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. Nicely done. One. Well yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Cool. Nerd yeah. points for me. <laughs> but I guess the, the the thing there is that it really depends on how mature a technology is in terms of what we want to prototype. Mm. So say we were making this crazy idea, we just wanted to try it out, and we really needed to learn about it before we wanted to commit to anything in terms of tooling from a composite side, then we'll still make that out of, out of alloy. Um, Got it. 
and it can be really helpful. It really depends on you know, the stage we are in that design. Um, something we just want to, you know, maybe further out down the road, maybe five plus years out, we might start there. Um, Got it. So it, it could be that long. Like you guys might have your scope on a bike that'll exist in five years. For sure. Um, you know, we have, we try to kind of balance the projects that we have, hmm. you know, typically the, the timeline for getting a, you know, from concept to production, Again, it depends on how mature a technology is, and what I mean by that is, if it's a you know a platform like Switch Infinity that we're really confident, in, we really feel confident in the theory and what we're gonna you know what we're seeing um, from a kinematic standpoint, we're confident in how it's gonna re how it's gonna ride, um, yeah. and having that ability to be like, okay, this is what's happening from a theoretical standpoint, and this is how it's actually riding, and feeling conf- confident that those two are gonna relate. Got it. Um, so that's that's part of it, and then if there's a, a design that we're looking at, you know, it's maybe a little bit more out there in terms of uh, the idea, then that might take, you know, maybe it's a five-year cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas one that's more um, baked and what I have more confidence in might be a, a one and a half to two and a half year cycle from concept to production. Got it. So that can be a lot quicker. Do you start off with like making things out of like plastics or like, uh, or, or what's the first material that you would start off with usually when you- Yeah, typically. It? So we'll, we'll get pretty- f- pretty far along on the, on the CAD side. So Got we'll it. have, um, you know, spent a lot of time focusing on that CAD model. Um, and the whole analysis on the kinematic side, the analysis on the structural side. Um, and if then, I can pause you on the structural yeah. side, is that where you're actually taking into account like the, how the frame would, would flex under a certain rider, those sort of conditions? Is that like when you're looking at that, yeah, like to, that early on, you know, to a point it's, uh, we, are mostly relying on, on empirical data in terms of testing. So um, data from the past, and that's how a lot of our, our testing standards have been developed. Um, we will start doing more and more um, of a, an analysis from, analysis from an FEA side from a composite standpoint. Got it. And the, in cool. short, it depends. It's not always worth it. So the mm. um, FEA is, is sort of one of those things that the data is only as good as your inputs pretty much. And yeah. oftentimes that's the most difficult part. Mm. Um, and then trying to talk about FEA from a composite standpoint versus you know a standard material like say aluminum, it's just completely night and day. It's, it's, it's much more difficult, much more time consuming. Um, yeah. And not always in, in the sort of expected life cycles, uh, product life cycle from the end consumer, what they expect when a bike will be released and how long a bike will stay in the market. It's, it's a really quick, pretty quick timeline for how complicated a bike is. Right. Um, and so it's not always that those are worth it, um, but the goal on our side is is to implement those things for for longer term projects. Yeah, it makes sense. So you 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 start uh, in CAD or different programs that are similar to that. And you're designing the bike, and then from there, do you then get do you have to get molds made after that to test it out, or do you just go to aluminum and test things? You know, typically, first? the first thing we do is is so we'll we'll be pretty confident in our in our three D design. Yep, and in the computer. And then we'll we'll typically get a, a plastic model actually CNC'd. Um, so Got it. as opposed to printing a full scale model, which can be actually pretty expensive and maybe not always the best choice, we actually um, have the the whole front triangle and the whole rear triangle machined out of uh, ABS. Wow! And um, usually cool. it's done in chunks. Um, yeah. So they'll do a chunk and then they'll be bonded together. But they're they are pretty. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're substantial. Pretty, yeah, substantial, <laughs> heavy, and they're they, uh, they're accurate. They're really accurate. And yeah. So we'll do that, and the main the main function of that is to one check aesthetics, see how everything is looking. Always the most important thing. It's a, a yeah. big part of it, yeah. And uh, then, it's uh, not an engineer, I can <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, um, checking for clearances, just uh, just double checking our, our CAD. So you know, putting wheels in and cranks and forks and and cycling through the travel and making sure we have clearances and and that's aligning with what our our CAD model is saying. So we'll start there. Um, 
and then really after that point, um, and we're, and maybe we make some changes based off of what we see there. Then, uh, then at that point, we're really committing to to tooling in order to get anything past that point. Huh. Okay. Got it. So at that point, uh, once you uh, do, you get to riding before the tooling process, or do you kind of wait for that? Uh, nope. Yeah. You can't can't ride anything you can't make. So, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah, we got to got to start there and, and start wow. with the tooling. So, uh, as I mentioned in the past, sometimes we make something out of aluminum and and, and check things like geometry and, and kinematics right. and so on. But the problem there is that they they don't relate that well anymore. Um, you know, yeah. the material properties are much different, and then um, your manufacturing limitations are much different. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're able to check things um, simply. You know, again, geometry and maybe kinematics and how it's feeling generally. Yeah. Uh, but then at the same time, your, your material pro- material properties are so much different um, that it's not maybe the best prototype for the next phase. So really, we're we're committed to to some sort of tooling at that point to make any any type of prototype. That's a big expense. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, it I mean, is. if you guys, so if you screw up on your end stretch before yeah. this, then that really sucks because then, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, like <laughs> you've got something, you've invested a ton of money into it and it may not work, but I, I assume that's part of the process. I mean, yeah, it is, and it's it's always a bit of a, a stressful time, and and I think uh, that's that's really the the reality of, of working with composites these days is that when we were, when we were prototyping something, um, we are, you know, we're committed to a, a pretty big, um, you know, a substantial amount of money in order to just get tooling going. Mm. Um, and but that's not to say that, you know, we've done that before and we've completely scrapped tooling that mm. we weren't satisfied with. So, which is never fun. Um, and <laughs> always, you, you've, I've had better days. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's just the way that that now the prototyping process works is that um, in order to get something that is going to be um, realistic in terms of what we're going to be producing, we need to we need to produce that out of carbon. So when you get this, you get this sample basically, right? Like you get this frame and then you start riding the thing. Um, do you use data collection services, like actually like electronic sensors on the bike to, to get stuff or do you rely on rider feedback? If both, I, we can talk about that. Yeah, so uh, we have done some data acquisition and most of that has been with working with Fox and mm-hmm. working with our race team. So we'll get data from those guys. Got it. Um, and in the past we have not had an internal data acquisition system for that. It's all been based off of rider feedback internally um, and with our race team and so on. Uh, we are now, um, this year is a pretty exciting year where we, we've started to do that. Nice. Um, so now we have a, you know, a few sets of data acquisition kits, if you want to call it, um, that we are running on every one of our R&D bikes. Nice. And so <clears throat> we're sort of, at the, sort of at the beginning phases of that in terms of um, really understanding how to control that data and how to analyze it and how to take a, you know, a subjective qualitative opinion from someone that's writing to something that's more quantitative. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time for that and looking forward to learning more about that as we go on. Yeah, that would be interesting. Like, uh, I, so I remember, I mean, very, I mean, in the motocross world, they put a ton of data acquisition stuff and I always remember people and you still see it today when it doesn't matter if you have all the data acquisition equipment yeah. on the bike. Uh, if the rider isn't able to relay that, or you have all these data points, but you can't make sense of it all, you know, it doesn't right. really matter a whole lot. So in the end, I guess that even when you have the data points, it'll really, you'll want to be looking still for rider feedback. Like it doesn't replace it, right? Not at all. Yeah, they, yeah. they'll definitely go hand in hand. It's, it's. Um, I just, it'd be nice to have a little bit more of a scientific approach to that mm-hmm. um, and the ability to be like, okay, this is someone's opinion and does it correlate to what we're seeing from a data standpoint? And we've done, it's been really fun over the last few months playing around with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, the a good test rider and the ability to give feedback and to really be able to describe those nuances between, you know, what am I feeling and is it a, is it, is it a, 
shock tuning issue? Is it a geometry issue? Is it how, you know, that general feel, there's actually pretty few people that are really good. Yeah, it'd be hard to be able to separate those things. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's, there's a few people that are really good at it and, and I'd say the majority of people are not. Yeah. Uh, which is, I, I'm, I'm honestly probably one of those. I, I've gotten better over the years, um, but there's some people that are really good at being able to articulate, you know, what they're feeling and, and, and being able to, you know, specify what particular part of the system, because it's a really complicated system if you think about yeah, it, it is, is, yeah. is going on and uh, giving, giving you great feedback that way. So, you know, Dave Zygman, if anyone's familiar, works at Yeti, is, is our main test writer. Uh, we have, you know, a whole collection of test writers for, for getting different feedback, but he's sort of our, our uh, starting and, and, and ending point. Oh, cool. And um, he's just, you know, really, really good at that. And um, it's, it's tough to find for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I could assume so. I mean, that part of it, I think a lot of people like wish that they could be a test rider for like a bike company. It seems like the ideal, like dream job of a bike rider in a lot of ways, but that would be a ton of hard work. And, and you have to be good at that to be able to suss all that stuff out. Not just a good rider. You have to be good at what you do. Cause yeah. I'm sure that even on the race team, like uh, I, uh, there are so many from my motocross days, there were so many top riders that were absolutely terrible at delivering insights or paying attention. Like yeah. you could change, you could move something an inch and they go out and they would have no clue. Right. Like, yeah, it's very, yeah. it's super common and it, it's, it is tough to find, um, those riders that are really good at doing that. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say it, it's, uh, they're outliers for sure. Yeah. So then I guess at that point, like you've gotten some testing on the bike, um, you figured out route, like it's, it's getting closer to the objectives that you want that bike to fulfill that sort of thing. Um, how many times is there like an average or, or, or perhaps maybe there's a bike in the past that was particularly difficult and required a lot of iterations, but how many times do you have to iterate and improve on that, you know, that frame that you've sent over or that mold that you've sent to get that frame built? Mm-hmm. Is there an average on how many times that has to be redone before it goes to production? You know, it, I guess there's a couple parts to it. One, you know, we're constantly trying to optimize that layup schedule of, uh, on the composite side in order to one, meet our testing criteria mm-hmm. and then, and also our, our writing feedback criteria. So it could be, it could be several times. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. the ultimate goal is in, in doing more composite R D in house and then doing, um, uh, more FEA in terms of the composite side in house is to maybe reduce that, that cycle a little bit, but, yeah, it makes sense. um, okay. but it's, it's one of those things that, uh, again, a, a mountain bike, people always talk about it like, Oh, it's just a bike. Right. But it's, it's actually from a composite standpoint and from a manufacturing standpoint, it is, it's a extremely difficult thing to make one. You have (laughs) these crazy shapes in terms of uh, sort of organic three dimensional shapes. And people talk about like, Oh, just, you know, do what you do in the aerospace industry. But you know, they're making a, a a rod that's the most simple geometry possible in the and, And it's, it's, very different than trying to do something like a very organic shape of a bike with actually really tight tolerances on, on a lot of the, uh, you know, say pivot points and all the things that we're trying to do from a yeah. s- suspension standpoint. So, um, every time like, you know, you talk to say like a so- software company, like, Oh, we do this analysis and this analysis, you can do this with our, with our software. And, and, um, it's, it's a much more difficult in practice when you're talking about our world than a lot of the other maybe industries that use those type of tools. Yeah. And so that's why you're more heavily reliant upon, um, you know, doing empirical testing and, um, it, you know, again, in a perfect world, you would be doing less of that. Um, but in a realistic world, it's, it's very important. Yeah. And that process, I guess could take years where you're refining a product like this, right? Like Mm -hmm. in terms of like going back and forth and making sure it's the right one. Exactly. Has there been a bike here that that's been released that was particularly, uh, whether it might be like a, a complex project, an engineering problem for you to solve uh, out of all the bikes that have that have been released. 
you know, we, I don't know. I feel like across the board, there's always, there's always something, some feature <laughs> in a bike that's more difficult. I, I think, you know, the, the unique, the unique thing about Yeti is, is, you know, the owners of, I guess, direction and, and being okay with, with, um, maybe thinking outside the box a little bit more and being mm-hmm. more innovative and not trying to take this crazy conservative approach as to, you know, let's make this, this model that, um, we know is, is going to be very conservative in terms of, um, maybe the performance, I guess, but yeah. you know that you're going to be able to manufacture it's it. It's cost effective. Yeah, right? cost effective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we have that freedom and luxury on the engineering side, um, to be able to really try things that are unique and, and try to improve and innovate and, and, and make the, the, the ride better. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know where I was, exactly I was going with that, but, uh, um, and that's a big, a big part of it is, um, that mm-hmm. ability to, to try new things with like, uh, I re- like the SB 100 seems like a somewhat complex problem to solve, but then I, you know, seeing all the bikes, they all seem complex in one way or another. I ride the 100, um, pretty regularly. It's got, it's like a different configuration of your, of your linkage design. Like it seems like, uh, I guess that that's what you're talking about right there in the sense that you right. guys kind of throw the, you know, you throw out the rule book and you just kind of start from scratch. So I guess I guess to answer my own question, then uh, they're all kind of complex. It's not like one was particularly tough over. Yeah, another. I mean, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of pinpoint one in particular, but um, you know, obviously we have different platforms that we've gone through over the years, and we're trying to imp- improve things. And, and I think each time you do one of those, um, there's some you know significant um, engineering you know problems yeah. and that you're trying to solve. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I want to get into a little bit um, on like standards. That's a, a, that was also a hot topic, kind of a, mm-hmm. a hot button issue apparently for a lot of folks. Um, yeah. And the concept of standards, and I'm using air quotes again, is 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 obviously somewhat silly in the sense that you know many standards rather than single uh, a singular standard. Right. Uh, but you know, brands like, uh, I think of like a brand like Cannondale that's just like, uh, they kind of write their own standards. Um, many people, you know, some people might dislike that. Some people might like that. Um, why don't other brands do that? Or why don't you guys uh, in that case, like, do you ever think like we have to adhere to these standards and this is what it is? Or do you think outside the box or do you find that the standards are fine as is? Like, I mean, I guess the the first part there is that just you know, our, our goal is to stick to our core competency and yeah. know what we're, we're, we're good at and what we can handle from a logistical and manufacturing standpoint. So, um, in like, a, if you take away that part of the equation, you're like, okay, Hey, I'm going to optimize this system as, as best as I can and, and integrate it into whatever we're doing on our side and don't worry about any of those standards. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then yeah, there could be some really cool things from an engineering standpoint. Right. Is that sustainable? Is, is, are you good at making those things? Yeah. Um, and then at the end is, is, is the, does the end customer actually want choice there? You know, do they want the ability to have a stand or well, quote again, standard, <laughs> yeah, standard of, I want to be able to put this fork or this fork or this totally. shock or this shock. So there's sort of trade offs there. Um, Again, from a strictly engineering standpoint, if, if that was the mentality, I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But at the same time, there's other things that you need to consider. And one, are you are you able to to design those things? And then, you know, is it sustainable to do that? Totally. Um, and then, uh, is that taking away from where you could putting your resources elsewhere, where you're where you're really confident in and really good at? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the engineer in me says like, yeah, that'd be awesome to be able to have free will <laughs> right. on whatever we wanted to do. Um, but then in, in reality, it ends up being helpful to have those other, you know, great companies that we work with, such as, you know, Fox and SRAM and Shimano and all those guys, yeah. um, that make such great product. Um, 
that we can we can use those resources to make the best package that we can possible. Yeah, call me crazy, but I'm grateful for standards. I know that like a lot of people always talk about how they hate them, but I like them. And I think that they should evolve. Uh, I think that as time goes on, things should get better. And it can be frustrating for sure when you, know, you get something and it, and it changes. But yeah, I think they're, I think it's good to have those things, you know, across the board. Otherwise, it'd be like Wild West. Like you know, component manufacturers would be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> what would they do? You know. Yeah, I mean, I think a, yeah. a th key thing to note there is that the the same frustrations that our end, end customer feels we surely feel um, yeah, yeah. because we, you know, we are just as much at the mercy of those standards as they are. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we try our best to, to take into consideration, you know, engineering considerations and logistical considerations and then what the end customer is going to have to deal with at the end. And we're in the, in the end, we're trying to make the experience best for them. Um, so trust me, uh, there's, there's frustration <laughs> on, on, on my side. It's literally what I deal with um, for my whole career yeah. <laughs> and changing those standards and then, um, trying to deal with that. And then, you know, having adhering to a, a standard and then having, you know, say a crank manufacturer make a crank that now has a different, um, envelope in which it doesn't fit our frame anymore, but then two months ago it did. So it, it's something right. that we, we <laughs> always are dealing with. Um, I get, and uh, I've talked about this maybe a bit publicly in the past, but I think the, the biggest frustration that I have is that, um, these, these standards aren't really discussed as an industry. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. they sort of, you know, I don't think it's uh, malicious. It's yeah. just that, uh, you know, somebody has a, an idea and they want to improve something on their end of the, of the spectrum in terms of what they're working on. Right. But maybe they're not taking into consideration the whole system. Yeah. And so when it's things like some of these standards, it'd be awesome to have some sort of I mean, a group of people that are in the industry that have different um, takes on what we're trying to achieve. And then we can all yeah. kind of talk and discuss these things and, and, and weigh the pros and cons. Almost like um, an independent, like governing body, third party sort of a thing. Yeah, in, a, in a way, just some way that the people that are, um, you know, sort of key to the industry oh, yeah. and relative to each part of um, a component or to a frame or whatever it is can discuss in some way um, before this. You know, we learn about the standards pretty much the same time that the <laughs> customer ends about the standards yeah. or learns about the standards. So it's not like we're in this, this loop and we're like, okay, we're to do like that's part of the problem too is we're not aware of these things um, they happen so quickly yeah um, and so we, we we try our best um, to to make the it best from from our standpoint from the logistical side to work well for the customer and then obviously from the engineering side for me is what I'm most concerned about um, but it, it's, it's one of those things that's tough right now and I think for sure could be improved yeah yeah um, and, and I, oh. I would love to have some group of, of people that are in the industry that are willing to sort of sit down and talk about some of these things. And I think part of that too is that <clears throat> they come up, there's a, there's a solution and so here's a standard that someone recommends. Um, but there's probably a better one. Um, yeah. If you talk, take the whole system into consideration and you're like, okay, we need to look at this from a, as a whole and not just I make cranks or I make <laughs> yeah. hubs or whatever it is. Um, we make bikes and so we sort of have to put it all together at the yeah. end. And so we, I think our perspective is maybe a little more broad than, um, and, and not, not because again, it's not a malicious thing. It's just that, um, I think that there could be some really good done if, if more people were willing to work together and discuss these things as from an engineering standpoint and a logistical standpoint. Yeah. It almost seems like the tails wagging the dog a little bit there. For you sure. Know what I mean, yeah. yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to have the other people thinking of that. I'm going to rip through some, some last minute ones, uh, because the time we have is limited. Uh, I want to talk about integration on bikes. Uh, we see like certain brands, like really like focusing in on like an integrated seat post or mm -hmm. <clears throat> integrated storage, whatever else it is. Uh, do you anticipate a time when 
bike manufacturers will be, you know, where you guys would be manufacturing potentially a dropper post and it's all integrated into the frame <clears throat> or, or those sort of things. Like, do you see, I guess, bike manufacturers transcending just making a frame and starting to actually make components that are built into the frame? Well, I mean, yeah, we kind of brushed on a little bit before, but for sure there's some engineering benefits of doing that without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and like a dropper example is, you know, maybe unless maybe one day there's this universal dropper that solves all the issues that we have now that's amazing and then things don't need to go integrated. But I do think yeah. there's a there's um, some ammo for for saying that an integrated post has some there's some cool features you can do with that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, it kind of comes back to competency and what you're what you want to work on and and um, and so on. But um, anytime you do integration, you're trying to like kind of what we talk about with standards. You're trying to take a system and think about it as a whole and how can you improve it instead of taking your two apples and making whatever right. yeah, yeah. whatever you're making. I don't know why I came with apples there, but um, <laughs> green and red. Yeah, yeah green and red. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, anytime you're looking at, at combining things as a system, it, there, there's possibility for some cool things without a doubt. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, do you, as an engineer, do you aim, so a common thought that are commonly held thought is that the more pivots or the more, uh, you know, pivot points, uh, in a bike, the more flexible it is or the worse of a design it is. Like people kind of like the simplicity aspect. Yeah. Is that like a consideration? Do you, do you, do you subscribe to that or? I think there's two sides to it. I mean, the always, the, the keep it simple obviously is, is a, is a benefit for a lot of reasons. Um, and, but there, for sure there's times where say whatever, say there's more pivots. Um, there's times where that's mm -hmm. warranted. And I, and I definitely think that, um, yeah, maybe more, complex as you say you added pivots um, but there's if it's warranted and there's a reason why you have it and you can try to optimize the system as a whole and that maybe that's the down not the downfall but that's the disadvantage so mm -hmm. say all right so we added some more pivots um, and but we did these really cool things the one disadvantage is that we have a couple more pivots or whatever it is I think there's there's um, something to be said for that so yeah, yeah. I don't like to obviously simple is is a, is a great rule of thumb uh, but if it's always just simple then it's tough to improve um, so I, I think there sometimes complexity is certainly worth it yeah yeah Bouncing around to a random one, since this is from a listener, with reach getting longer and longer on bikes, let's say somebody doesn't, you know, they don't want to buy a new bike or they're not able to buy a brand new bike, something like that. Yeah. The question is, should they just size up and then will they get like a similar experience? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I would say, uh, so it goes back to what we were talking about previously, is that um, I would say probably not a great experience. Yeah. Um, one, because we talk about how that geometry relates to each other and, and the reasons for going to say a steeper seat tube and a longer reach and a slack heading angle and a shorter offset, all those things really work together to make that uh, cohesive feel. And if you're just going to a longer frame size, you're not changing any of, the, any of those other variables and you're really, it's not gonna work well together as a system. Yep. Um, and then maybe not to mention that your seat tube probably would be too long to begin with. Yeah, yeah. You cut it off. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I, I would say yeah. Uh, yeah. it's probably not a great idea. You're, I mean, you, you're not going to get the same benefits as you are just because your reach is longer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It, those other variables are critical. Makes sense. Uh, are 27.5 or is 26 dead? That's a question. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think honestly, yeah, I'd say so. Is 27.5 going to be replaced by 29? <clears throat> you know, that could, we're going back to all these amb ambiguous questions. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of those things that 
people like that choice and, and it's a very personal choice there and, and what they prefer, I guess, mm-hmm. preference more than choice. Um, you know, I, I personally prefer 29 inch bikes right now. Yeah. Um, and it's what I like. And, and then I, you know, half the people here are the opposite side of the spectrum and then really love 27.5. And, and, um, so I think on our side is, is still allowing, you know, giving that choice to the, to the consumer and what they want to ride. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say that 27.5 at the moment is, is anywhere near the place where there, no one wants to ride it. Do you um, ever wish we could have bigger wheels? From a, from a packaging standpoint, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I mean, yeah. I, who knows? You know, and, and all these values on our wheel sizes are, are not really. I mean, they just kind of evolved to where they are. No one, you know, sort of scientifically thought about twenty nine is, is the best. What is this one, exact yeah, value? Yeah. You know, and maybe twenty nine point two five would be better. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it just sort of at, at a point you get to where we are, where it's like, all right, that's you know, just like any other standard, it'd be difficult to, to change. But if you like could start with a fresh sheet of paper and be like, okay, what wheel size do I want? It'd be a, a lot different choice probably than what, how it evolved to become what it is today. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, people, there'd probably be more analysis of why you go to this size and looking at clearances and then also looking at other benefits of the, the wheel size. It sort of ended up here non-scientifically. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, kind of funny. Right? So <clears throat> I guess that to answer that, if, if you had a blank sheet of paper and you're like, okay, hey, let's go spend the next year and figure out what wheel size you want. And maybe it's not 29. Yeah, it'd be interesting, huh? But I don't see it changing anytime soon <laughs> because it's not a very flexible variable <laughs> yeah. in the world of bikes, uh, changing yeah. a wheel size. People wouldn't yeah. be very happy, I don't yeah. think. Um, speaking of people that are not happy, press fit bottom brackets. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people dislike them. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually, I've had one bike that had problems with the press fit bottom bracket. Um, and it was actually, it was a, it was a road bike and it was warranted actually because I had a problem with it. It, it. wasn't because it was a press fit, it was because it was built right. properly. Right. Um, so I actually haven't had problems with them. Are the, are they bad? Like, like <laughs> well, in your, as an engineer, are the press fits bad? Easy answer is just, is a simple no. Um, yeah. there's a couple of things that I think are worth clearing up at least when I, when <laughs> I have fun reading on the inner Googles these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one of them is that, uh, uh, people use a uh, choose a press fit BB because it's cheaper to manufacture. I like that one. Yeah, um, I'm not sure where that came about or who came up with that information. So but, it's not necessarily. Uh, cheap. It is uh, literally like not even a thought of our in terms of consideration <laughs> yeah. in terms of the price yeah. of how we're manufacturing that bottom bracket. At least certainly for our brand. I mean, uh, maybe if you're talking about some brand that is talking about, you know, really focuses on volume. Um, but it's, it's simply for us, it has nothing to do with costs in any possible way. In fact, I don't think it's cheaper. Um, but there's a couple of considerations there. One, um, we really have very, very few issues with, with press fit bottom brackets. I'm not quite sure how it got such a bad rap, um, whether it's based (laughs) off of other manufacturers of frames or I almost wonder what's happening. BB 30 too. Because when BB 30 first came out, there were a ton of issues and I wonder if people just assimilated it to that. Cause I hear it all the time. Yeah. I do agree that, that PF 30, um, or BB 30, sorry. Um, maybe started that bad rap more so than, than, a say a PF 92. Yeah. Um, where you have your, you know, we sort of learned that as well. And, and having your, your bearings integrated or not cantilevered off of the BB had a, had a it was a big factor there. Yeah. Um, but a couple of points I wanted to bring up is the, the one of our big focus focuses on composites is that we're not, we're trying to, m- to minimize the number of times we have disliked materials, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, you know, alloy and, comp- and carbon together. Yeah. Um, you know, they flex at different rates and, um, it's, it's ideally you're, you're not mixing those materials. Mm-hmm. So our, our, I'd say our biggest driver is that with a, a PF, um, bottom bracket, we do not have to have alloy in those areas. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, that's the first. And we, we have very little, um, alloy in our, in our bikes at all these days. 
Yeah. Um, that's the first one. The other two benefits are, or one, the, the actual OD of the BB is smaller than, say, uh, a, a BB that you would have with um, a, a threaded, uh, or a threaded BB, I should say. Yep. Um, so it gives us- OD meaning outer diameter. Yep, exactly. It. So it gives us a little bit more flexibility in terms of linkages and, and fitting um, things where we need to fit them. Nice. Um, and then also the, the actual shell width is, is 92 millimeters opposed to 73, so it's wider. Yeah. So our interface with our, our down tube is actually larger. So those are the, the, the benefits. and. Um, at the same time, we really don't have have issues. Um, yeah. we actually, and, and honestly, uh, and <laughs> we, we laugh at times where, uh, you know, not that threaded is bad. I, I, I I'm a, a bit indifferent there, and, and um, but uh, you know, we we tend to have as many creaking issues with a with a threaded BB than than with a press fit BB. Yeah, there you go. Um, we don't have time to get into the suspension questions. We want to, but that's a whole different can of worms, and we can dig into that at some other point, perhaps. Uh, we'll have to come out here for another lunch ride, but. Um, a couple other ones, uh, if you did have to get rid of a standard or one that frustrates you as an engineer, one that you'd like bump up against, is there a single one that like, that poses more of a problem than others and more frustration for you? Uh, I mean, without a doubt right now, the, the biggest bottleneck that we have is, is tire clearance on the, on the, on the chainstay, the drive ch mm -hmm. side chainstay where your drivetrain is mm -hmm. as a result, as a result of drivetrain and, and the chain line. Mm -hmm. Um, so as we go to bigger 29 inch tires and we go to, um, you know, bigger chain rings. Cause if you have, you say an Eagle cassette or whatever it is, right. um, every one of those variables is, are fighting each other. So for, yeah. for space where you know, shorter chain stay, say as an example, uh, a, um, a wider tire, a bigger tire uh, diameter wise, a bigger chain ring. Um, and then at the same time we want internal routing and be able to fit, um, you know, a cable or housing through your chain stay. Right. Um, every single one of those things are working against each other in terms of real estate in that area. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, Kind of goes back full circle, and you know, one of the options there is to go to Super, super Boost is an option, yeah. Um, and it, it's not off the table; it is still an option. It has been. We chose not to this this last round, um, and there's benefits of it. We have more clearance there, um, but it right. kind of, in my side, logistically, it's, it's it would have been a tough thing for the customer at the moment um, in terms of what's available for components in that in that mm -hmm. uh, standard, I should say. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that we would never do it, but it, the frustration there is too is that there was really no discussion as an in industry as to as to how this specific value or or a standard came to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, is there a better way to possibly do it? I mean, maybe like say, you know, is there a way to have a wider chain line like a Superboost chain line, but not have a wider hub? Yeah. And. I probably, I mean, there probably is. I haven't, I'm not, a, I'm not in the drivetrain side of things, but maybe there is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so just taking that as an, as a solution, because we get the space, um, it, you know, it's, it's easy and it'd be great to have that, to have that space, but whether it's the right answer, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's one of the things that's open-ended. It's, it's very well that we could do a super boost, a swing arm, if that's the solution. Um, yeah. It's just that I would love uh, of their, for there to been maybe more communication as an industry <laughs> to, to, to why, and maybe maybe someone could present some other options as to what that solution could be. Can you imagine the pink bike comments on the announcing of like the council of standards? <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, last question. Uh, so uh, there have been a ton of breakthroughs in the past like 15 years with bike design. Is there a specific part of bike design? I don't know if it's like gearbox drivetrains, or I don't know if it's something with the chassis itself or the frame or suspension. Do you foresee like a huge improvement in a specific area or what's the next big advance for bikes? That's a tough one. Um, and not e-bikes, we don't bring that. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, uh, I mean, 
gear bikes as an engineer, or, or gearboxes, sorry, not gear bikes, um, as an engineer, are always just a nerdy, fun topic. Um, yeah, yeah. But they're, it, it, I think in reality, they're a bit of a pipe dream. Like, uh, um, it's pretty difficult to, um, I'll go kind of come full circle there, but it's, it's, there's a reason why there isn't still a solution for that that yeah. solves all the problems. So try to, trying to be as efficient, as lightweight, as a as a chain drive, mm -hmm. and then at the same time not having weird constraints like you can shift while you're under power under load, right? right. Or you can run a, a trigger shift or a paddle shifter as opposed to a, a grip, a grip shift. shifter. You know, you don't have to pull the cable in two directions. Yeah, um, all those things and weight. Uh, we already talked about that a bit, but yeah, um, and then just just general efficiency we talked about too. But it's a it's an <laughs> extremely difficult engineering problem yeah. that. If someone solves one day, it'd be um, rad. Um, I yeah. don't. I wouldn't, I'm not going to hold my breath for that solution um, because it's it's because of those reasons. Um, it's yeah. been a long time. People have had a long time to think about. Not that it could never happen. Um, I would love for it to happen. I think there's some really cool things you could do from a suspension standpoint when you don't. You know, all yeah. of a sudden we went from a you know three by to a two by in the front to a one by, and how much that simplified and how well we can optimize suspension. Think about doing that again, but without having anything in your cassette. It'd be pretty um, amazing. You have one chain line, and you could do some pretty amazing things. Um, yeah. From that standpoint, um, I don't see it happening anytime soon, mm. but it would be cool. So do you just foresee <laughs> anything else being like the next big thing? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I think in that when when I was reading that question, it was like. Um, you know what? What has really changed in the last fifteen years? And I think a big part of what has changed in 15, the last fifteen years is just our general understanding of kinematics and and dynamics and what's happening from a suspension standpoint to make the bike behave well. Yeah. Um, which I think that is has really been the biggest impact on bikes. You can talk about materials and stuff too, but I I honestly think that the understanding of suspension and Suspensions geometry is a, ton. a big part of it. Yeah. Um, down the road, um, I mean, I tend to think that manufacturing methods um, mm. and the ability to, you know create composites and maybe a different method than we're doing now that is, is less um, um, labor intensive and, and, and more repeatable. Um, you know, we have to build in safety factors on how bikes are manufactured just because, you know, they're, they're laid up by totally. a person. Um, yeah. And so you try to get the best repeatable ability that you can possible, uh, but there's always going to be some safety factor that has to be built in there. So there's a, down the road, if there's a way that we can be manufacturing composites that's, you know, completely, um, whether it's some sort of, you know, based off a machine, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that'd be cool. A way that we can really um, control that repeatability, and then we have less um, constraints in terms of how that part needs to be structured. Or, you know, think of like I know three D printing is always sort of a cliche topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but if you do think of it from that that standpoint, you're like, okay, um, I can make whatever structure I want, and I can repeat it exactly. I mean, it's very repeatable. I can make it the same every time. Um, you know, if you ignore the issues that we have with those sort of things where the structure and the, and the materials are not the, the same, don't have the same properties as they do as we do it now, which is the biggest limitation, honestly, is keeping the same properties. But uh, yeah. if there is a way to keep those same material properties, but have the ability to, to do it um, in a sort of a 3D printing fashion, um, and with the structures that you can make with that. And I guess, so I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but maybe the just generally manufacturing methods. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. That'd be really cool. I think there's, yeah, I, I think that's like a spot right for innovation. So thanks, man. I really appreciate it, Stretch. Uh, thanks for taking some time. Uh, I'm sure this has caused a lot of questions in addition to answered a lot of questions. Uh, so if people do have questions, uh, send them in. You can just do the so on mtbpodcast.com uh, and you can let us know what questions you have. And uh, if they're ones that, that we can get over to stretch and that he has time to answer, then we will. 
Um, I really appreciate it, man. Of course. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And best of luck solving all of these crazy problems with standards and customers that want everything for themselves. <laughs> so appreciate it. No, bless you for the hard work. <laughs> that's what keeps it fun. Now I enjoy it. Awesome. Uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, stay tuned to our Instagram channel. We're going to have a small little drawing that explains uh, fork offset and mechanical trail and all those things. Uh, we'll chat with you all soon. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.